0: Welcome to the accompanying podcast, the Incidental Encyclical Magazine and online community. So we're recording this as a way to cover some of the things that we are going to be publishing in the magazine and discussing on our online community. This is just a way for people who are more into the audio format over the written word or people who like both to get just the live treatment, and live discourse. So we're bringing you coverage of the content in there and it'll be coming from myself. I'm Samuel Wilmot. I'm one of the editors. We've also got Levi back. who's another editor. And Edwin Aidney, who's a contributor, has written a creative piece for the magazine. So we'll introduce ourselves. Like I mentioned, I'm Samuel. I've got a bachelor's in ancient history from Macquarie, and I'm currently enrolled in a master's of teaching. And I've loved the classics for many years now. And it's always been a passion to share those and to try and pass it on. And that's why the project kind of began.
1: Uh, Yeah. Hello, everyone. I'm Levi. I've also got a Bachelor in Ancient History from Macquarie University, and I'm very much a sort of an ancient languages buff. I also enjoy history and philosophy in, in the classics that I work in, and I'm currently doing my master's in further research.
2: Nate, Yeah, I'm Eddie. I am a liberal arts graduate and I've been living in the UK for the last year just living over there doing some traveling and obviously via studying liberal arts I became very interested in the classics and you know I met a few lovely gentlemen along the way. Too kind. Come on. (laughs) Um, I've got a a passion for that. Oh come on (laughs) ruined it. yeah no but I love the classics. Wouldn't say I'm like a massive ancient history buff I wouldn't call myself but I love it and I've studied a bit of it and I'm actually hoping to study ancient history at some point so yeah that's me.
0: Yeah, you got to do it. It's a can of worms for sure. Mm. The ancient world—it's way more connected than you most people realize, but it's also not quite connected enough for us to know every link, which is just tantalizing at every turn. Mm. Um, speaking of the classics, I just want to read out—or I might get Levi to start—and we want to tell you a little bit about this project, the Incidental encyclical. And why we started it and what we hope it will bring to our readers, our listeners and the community online.
1: When we were thinking about really what the purpose of this project was, it was to take meaningful themes from the past and from classics and to revivify them and to make them more approachable to the modern reader. And I think that's really at the core of what we're trying to do here. I think you would agree so, with that, Sam.
0: I'd absolutely. And coming off that, what we really hope is that this entire project, magazine, podcast, and everything else will become or be an asset to people who care about education. And we hope it'll bring them into a community of creatives who also share a love of learning. And so that's what the people sitting here, obviously not the same room, but together over the hall, we represent. We are people who've met because of study in the classics and we have friendships that exist outside of that but they're definitely being augmented and made better because of the love that we have and the shared talking points and ways that we've changed and developed because of the past the classics and all of that so every issue of our magazine is going to have a lot of creative content poetry short stories and it's all going to be inspired by a theme and the theme for our first issue is the journey up eddie's written a great short story which i love And it's going to be in our first issue. Um, But we draw these themes each quarter from particular works, particular classics that we feel have a lot to bear still on not just society in a broad sense or culture in a broad sense today, but that can have a a great bearing on individual lives and maybe have had bearings on, personally, our individual lives as editors and contributors and so what each issue will do in the editorial essays at the start of the magazine and also on podcasts like this is I'll summarize and present those works to to the readers or to the listener to give them a sense of what it's about if they haven't already or hopefully if they even have read it, it'll give them a new take on some of the content of it. And from there, the theme which we draw from these classics will spill out in a kind of a little symphony or Fibonacci sequence across a little creative works that accompany it. And so hopefully people who get on board and read the magazine will get a really lovely fleshed out take on the particular motif that we pick. And like I mentioned, this quarters will be the journey up. That's the theme. And the first work that immediately comes to mind, I think for many people, especially if you've... Well, I shouldn't say for many people. For people who've done ancient Greek will be the Anabasis of Xenophon. Levi, why don't you tell us a little bit about the history of that, at least in, in study, and why a lot of people will be familiar with it. The Anabasis
1: of Xenophon is a text from classical Greece. This is, if you'll grab me the exact date, Sam, but I'm thinking written around 400 BC. Yeah, a little bit after. A little bit after, all right, sorry. then. And (laughs) in the study of ancient Greek, it's very traditional for this to be after you've done your two years, your three years of Greek study under your professor at university, that this, as your newly minted uh, Greek scholarship, you'd move in to tackle this piece on your own. And I think uh, Sam and I had experience with this before we'd even finished our course in Greek, we tried to take a stab at it, and the way in which it encapsulates philosophy, the narrative it tells, which I'm sure we'll get into a little later, it makes it very approachable, and the nature of the Greek is very approachable as
0: well. It's got a good pace to it. One of the interesting things that Xenophon writes in the present tense a lot, or the simple past tense, which is hard to translate in English, doesn't make a lot of sense, but it means that when you're reading it, it feels like it has a pace to it that you don't get in translation, which is a shame, but yeah, it was fun. We, we just essentially been told that since the Renaissance, this had been like the introductory text, and I think we sat down one summer and... Tried to get through as much of the first book as we can. We didn't get that far, but it's still good.
2: Kind of been that interesting, then.
0: It is interesting. Let me tell you why, Eddie. Please. Let me imagine Greece has just come out of a bloody civil war between the city states Athens v. Sparta, the classic yep. it's the Peloponnesian War, which lasted from 431 BC to 404 BC. Mm. And it kind of ended because of Persian intervention on behalf of Sparta. Now, in the intervening period, Sparta was kind of the top dog, but there was a lot of trouble, as you can imagine. It was kind of a Mediterranean world war. You had powers from the East getting involved. You had all the Greek city states getting involved. And so you have a lot of soldiers who don't settle back in super well post coming home. Mm. And you had a lot of mercenary armies roving around the Mediterranean looking for work, (laughs) wanting some more quick cash, some loot and bounty. And so the story picks up in the middle of some trouble in the East with this young guy, Cyrus, who's the second in line after his brother, the older brother, Artaxerxes, and their father, Darius, is sick, and he wants both sons to come to see him before he passes. Cyrus comes, is immediately arrested by his brother on the charges of some sort of sedition. He escapes because his mother intervenes, and then immediately, what do you think he does? Commits treason. He commits treason. He goes home and he raises four mercenary armies. Not one, not two, not three. He raises four mercenary armies. Mm partially barbarian, partially Greek, and he starts launching them on little mini campaigns against public enemies. So it looks doesn't look super suspicious. Oh, I'm attacking the Pisidians. It's okay. And by this time, his brothers ascended to the throne. His dad's passed. So he eventually gathers all his armies together at Colossae, and then they start marching into the interior. Mm. And so this narrative begins with all these Greek mercenary bands and the leader of a couple of different generals, the main one being this guy called Clearchus, who's a Spartan, and they're marching into the interior, and you're getting this epic narrative of essentially a godlike king or a wants to be godlike king cyrus Mm. really wants to style himself as his ultimate despot trying to keep these uh super unruly greek mercenaries together as they're all just clamoring to get paid constantly the story rolls on and cyrus manages to keep most of the army together and bring them practically to the gate of babylonia There's this place called Kanaxa, where finally he encounters his brother's army in the field. And by this point, you know, his brother's heard that he's not there to attack their common enemies. He's there to try and take the throne. The battle goes down. And the Greeks absolutely smash the flank they're sent against. They think that they've completely won the battle, but little do they know it that during the engagement, Cyrus was too reckless to even bother putting a helmet on, rode into the middle of the fray where his brother, the king was, and was summarily struck in the face with a javelin. Mm. If you were the Australian government, I remember when we were <laughs> growing up and had to do those um, bicycle training courses and they made you watch those little things about wearing a helmet. Yeah, Did they you should you ever use had this to story. I think they should use Cyrus not putting a helmet on on before riding into battle. I mean, and, that'd be a and... good
2: way to bring the classics into contemporary I... society, wouldn't it? <laughs>
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, I think the visceral image of this young Persian prince getting skewered in the eye with a javelin would really make you think twice about bicycle safety.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's not quite as PG as, you know, little cartoon Jimmy trying to ride across the road with his little helmet, but got to grow up quick sometimes.
0: <laughs> you know, the the stuff that we're all exposed to today, I'm sure it's under all water under the bridge. But it wasn't water under the bridge to the Greeks, of course, because no. <laughs> they, having thought they have won the battle, find out the next day that the person that they marched all the way into the heart of Mesopotamia with is now dead and they panic and they immediately call one of his friends and they say, look, can we put you on the phone instead? And he says, no, thank you. I'd rather just surrender. And so the Greeks are in a stalemate. And this is where Xenophon, the author of the book, suddenly appears. He's kind of popped up in the narrative once before and there are a couple of characters previously who have these very weird pun-like names which don't make a lot of sense. Uh, This is a young philosopher character who kind of pops up with this fake name occasionally at the book and then all of a sudden the the author Xenophon pops up right when the army needs a leader. He offers to take charge of the army after their generals like Clearchus have been betrayed and killed by the Persians and this begins a narrative which is kind of the meat and potatoes of of, it, of an army stuck very, very deep into enemy territory and cutting their way, fighting tooth and nail to get back to the the Black Sea, where they can finally try and get a ship to Greece. So on the surface, there's a good reason that it's offered as something for for new students of Greek to read because it's not just simple on the surface, at least a simple work. It's a really good adventure story and it's engaging because of that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It really takes a very clear narrative, a very clear structure, but. It also is a story with quite a lot of depth behind it. Because Xenophon was not merely a soldier who walked around in the army doing mercenary things. He was also a bit of a philosopher and he really took his inspiration from his mentor Socrates. And this is
0: actually, turns out to be sort of, not quite, but sort of how Xenophon ends up joining the army. So he gets invited by one of the commanders who is later killed by the Persians after Cyrus is defeated, a guy called Proxenus. And Proxenus invites Xenophon and says, come on, like Cyrus, he's raising armies, he's giving out money to his friends. If you come and join me on this expedition, you will probably getting close with this guy and it might be good for you. And this is coming in the middle of civil tension in Athens at the time. Xenophon's an Athenian. He's a student of Socrates, and Socrates is on trial. And all the Socratics are under immense public scrutiny for being civil disturbers. So, in this moment in the story where Xenophon arrives and decides he's going to put his hat in the ring to, to offer to leave the army and get them home safely, he tells us the backstory of how he came here and he tells us how he came to Socrates and asked him whether he should go on this voyage. And Socrates brings up the Oracle of Delphi quite frequently in a lot of the dialogues. And he, in this Instance also recommends that Xenophon go talk to Apollo's oracle and see if he should go on this voyage. Which Xenophon does, but he does it in a very roundabout way. And instead of going there and asking the oracle, "Should I go on this voyage?" he says, "Which god should I sacrifice to to get the best result on the voyage?" And so he gets his answer. He goes back and tells Socrates, and Socrates chastises him severely and says, "That's not a very honest way to ask God for mm. for advice." But it brings in something very interesting about xenophon and levi brought up the fact that he's a, a philosophical character right he's a historical personage who was not just a soldier of fortune a mercenary in fact he wasn't really any of those things until this voyage but he's someone who was famous throughout history and even after his own time in the, like for example in the reign of alexander he was famous as someone who really was able to in their writings and in the life that they lived merge the difficult business of politics and philosophy uh, Socrates famously said that he would rather that he'd rather be poor and a philosopher than to be a rich politician. And so Xenophon's a very interesting character insofar as he's someone who shows immense political aptitude, but he does it with a profound humility and introspection, uh, which comes through in the way he writes the Anabasis. So as I mentioned, Xenophon only pops up at kind of the worst possible moment in the story for the Greek army. Uh, he arrives, he mentions himself, he says he's had this prophetic dream about his father's house burning down and he sees this as sort of a, a sign because there was lightning in the dream and he sees it as Zeus having communicated to him and he puts himself forward as a leader and he he begins uh, this voyage. And he's, he's not the sole leader of the army. Uh, he's actually in the rear guard, but for all intents and purposes, he is essentially the full, the total leader of the army, both in a narrative sense and in terms of how his decisions carry weight in what Mm. then goes on so the problems that the army faces immediately are to do with the the problem of piety and of trust what happened prior to xenophon becoming leader that forced him into this position was that the other leaders so clearchus the spartan proxenus who invited xenophon on the voyage they'd gone to a meeting with a persian governor this is because they were tr- they're were they trying to work out what they should do. Do they submit to the Persians to try and get safe passage home? Do they fight? And they'd be in this stalemate for a couple of weeks, trying to work out what they should do, slowly trying to sneak away from the Persians, and eventually gets to the point where the Persians say, you know what, the best thing to do is we'll talk it over with the banquet. Now... For sure any of us who've read a fantasy novel knows it's a terrible idea to go to a banquet hosted by your, you know, <laughs> by a king who you've wronged. But the Greek generals do it and summarily get cut down and beheaded. And the reason that they have gone into this is because they had a solemn truce, a pious truce, a truce on the gods between the leaders of the Greeks and this Persian governor that they weren't going to harm each other. The Greeks wouldn't try and start a fight and attack the Persian army. And the Persian army wouldn't try and turn the locals against them and burn the crop and cut them off from home Mm. so there's an immediate problem in the story of what is the place of trust of honor and of piety when clearly that failed for the previous regime the previous leadership of the army and so xenophon has to walk this delicate rope of maintaining a level of 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 piety perhaps outward piety if it's not thoroughly internalized, but enough party that the troops don't get demoralized and think that the gods have turned against them. But also he needs to have a certain canniness and convince them that they have to rely on his skill, not on the gods' help to get them out of this. And it's just one of these many moments in the story Xenophon in every book, from the minute he kind of steps up to put himself forward as a leader from book three to, three to book seven, is presented almost in every one of these segments, installments, with a dilemma between two outcomes that will definitely lead to failure and he has to walk a fine middle line. So in book three, we've just had the, the Greek generals murdered because they assumed that the, the Persians would believe in divine vengeance if they broke an oath. Now, clearly the Persians don't care. They don't care if the Greek gods will get vengeance on them for breaking oath, they murder them anyway. So Xenophon here can't blindly assume that the men are just going to trust him if he says, it's okay, Zeus has our back, he'll march us out of here. They have seen what's happened and they know that should he make this pitch that the gods will be their saviors, it's liable to lead to mistrust and the army will fragment totally. There'll be no leaders, no one will trust the direction of xenophon and his comrades but he can't simply say as an alternative the gods have abandoned us i'm your only hope trust me i'll get us out of here because to ignore the gods would be demoralizing it would make them feel like they were totally abandoned so xenophon walks this fine line it's not quite a noble lie but he's using rhetoric very cleverly in this moment to say that both we have no deliverer we have no helper using this idea that the gods aren't there, but also using this idea of the virtues, of the divine virtues as being the the staff that they're going to lean on to guide them out. So he's playing this interesting game where he's not naming the gods specifically and saying it's going to be Zeus who gets us out, but he's making reference to something very Socratic, the idea of these divine absolute virtues that can be accessed by the human mind, by the philosophical minds, and which are dependable and which are true and no matter what can be relied upon and so there's moments like this throughout the work and it's one of those moments in which the Socratic education of Xenophon comes through very strongly so Levi I think I'll hand it over to you now because you've written a column for our magazine which is a translations piece uh, and going with that theme of the journey up you picked a passage from another student of Socrates who really doubles down this idea of these divine eternal intransient virtues as something that can be relied upon so I might hand over to you and let you go and walk us through your column.
1: Absolutely given this theme i thought what's what's a journey upward? what's a famous journey upwards and i think when you're looking at classical works especially in a greek tradition something like the allegory of the cave drawn from plato's republic is an excellent example for those of you who aren't familiar with the story imagine prisoners who have been chained down in a cave heads fixed as well they can't turn around and all they see are shadows on a wall there's a fireplace behind them and there's a walkway and people come past and they're bringing, they're carrying pots, they're carrying figurines, everything. And what Socrates asks in this dialogue, this is the dialogue that Socrates is presenting to his fellow interlocutor. Uh, at a party, he's talking to a, one of his mates, pretty much. He says, well, imagine this situation. Wouldn't these people who have been chained all their lives and been forced to look at this wall think that, you know, what they're seeing and what they're hearing, they're hearing the noises from behind them. That's reality. It's all they've ever known. All they've ever seen. This is reality to them. What if one day one of them was to break free, free from his shackles, and he'd turn around, he'd see fire, that what he had formerly perceived as reality, as the shadows on the wall, would see the actual figurines themselves. And then he would move up out of the cave, and he would see reflections in the water, and he would see actual objects. And then he would look up and he would see the sun, he would see the source of all knowledge, the source of all intelligibility. And then he would, having gained this sort of enlightenment, having seen, oh, what I saw before was an illusion. This is reality. Would head back down into the cave, see his former fellow prisoners all chained up and feel sorry for them, try and free them, try and enlighten them. But having gone up and had his eyes exposed to bright light, wouldn't be able to see as well in the darkness of the cave. And his fellow prisoners would think he's lost his sight. He can't see. He's talking nonsense. Why would we value this? This idea of the philosopher who gains enlightenment, but isn't appreciated by his compatriots. I mean, this is obviously an echo, first of all, of Socrates' own life, who spent his entire life chasing enlightenment, knowledge, truth, virtue, and for it was put to death because he was being too bothersome and corrupting the youth of Athens. It's a story of, I think, philosophers and those who chase to exemplify virtue everywhere. I think
0: the uh, Wachowski brothers really solved the issue here when they had Neo come back and learn Kung Fu after being enlightened. I think that's the way to <laughs> I think that's the way to impress everybody with your new philosophical enlightenment is just to show them that you're now a martial arts master and that they're, they're probably gonna to be totally sold on it.
2: I mean, in I'm, a way it sort of works because previously it wasn't really possible to do that kind of thing. And so kung fu, I suppose I'm gonna have to do that now yeah, come, for enlightenment's
0: sake. You're gonna come back from England and you've you've learned to toss the caber and we'll all have assume that you've attained nirvana.
2: <laughs> well, I've learnt to call people tosses. I don't know about tossing anything else. But... <laughs> <laughs>
0: So in lieu of learning Kung Fu, what is it that Socrates is is seeking to gain? Or what does he gain in his pursuit?
1: Socrates is always in his dialogues, trying to understand the nature of virtue. He's always asking people, He's he'll come across a situation, he'll come across someone who's going to court, and he'll ask, why are you coming to court today? And, and this interlocutor, let's give him a name, let's call him Dave, is saying, I've come to take my father to court. Socrates will look at him askance and think, hold on, you're taking your own father to court about what was like because my father has been impious oh if you're bringing your own father to court about impiety you must have a really good idea about what it means to be a faithful and pious person surely well he's got him Dave... there he's hook line and sinker right now <laughs> exactly dave's here sitting well yeah actually I think, I think i do have a pretty good idea it means being faithful to the gods it means making your sacrifices socrates is like well is that all there is to being pious are you really achieving the full breadth of moral virtue in piety because you sacrificed to the gods once in a blue moon he's always picking he's always investigating the republic itself mm-hmm. is really a story of justice Trying to understand how to implement justice, both in your own soul and also in a social, in a political setting. And that's sort of where you get this connection back to the Anabasis. I yeah, say. I was going
0: to say it's, it's a mm. really interesting, it's difficult because we don't know exactly when either were written. We know roughly when the Anabasis is written, but they were written around the same time. And whether Xenophon and Plato had some sort of awareness of the other work, it was a conundrum that would be lovely if we could fully and definitively solve it. But you're right. What makes them such good companions to one another, even though they're very, very different works in a lot of ways is that both of them are trying to hone from higher and higher to smaller and smaller or from smaller and smaller to higher and higher back backwards and forwards going up and down with analogies and stories and speeches and examples and dialogue and ask the question of first of all how do you establish justice in the community like in the political body but also how do you establish justice within yourself and it becomes a running theme in the Anabasis as Xenophon moves through not just these external hardships you know the army very quickly after leaving the Persians behind almost freezes to death in the mountains Mm. as they come into Armenia and then they move upwards and they're facing mountain tribes and they can barely make it through the past without multiple men being shot down from these fortresses and then bit by bit you watch him go through the these trials and lead the army through them and very subtly you notice that the way that you're seeing the world you're seeing it through xenophon's eyes he's the author the way you in the world is changing because xenophon's allowing these virtues justice the stability of the political body of the community to reflect not just on the external circumstances but on himself the author how he's writing the work.
1: Absolutely. And I think another connection that is important to draw here, and I think might also connect to our third work quite well, is that Xenophon in the Anabasis, he's not just on his own journey upwards. Anabasis literally means the journey up. He's leading his men upwards. He's leading his men home out of hostile country, up through the mountains to the sea. And Socrates in his narrative, written down by Plato, encounters a bit of difficulty with this idea. He's like, I'm not sure that this philosophical knowledge, that these ideas of virtue will be readily accepted. Can, can you really free people? Can you lead them up? And I think our third writer and his work also has some ideas on leading other people upwards.
0: It is fascinating, yeah, because there's a conclusion that's sort of drawn in both the Republic and in the Anabasis. It seems in both of those books that it might be an impossible task, because by the time that Xenophon leads the army back to Greece, they're practically exiles at that point. Nobody wants to house the remaining 8,000 men anywhere, because it's a logistical nightmare. So they're kind of in this limbo for a long time and the men sort of default back to these this very anarchistic state and so you get this sense that the triumph perhaps has been achieved but really has it and the same thing in the allegory of the cave which you can read Levi's translation of an accompanying essay for the philosopher comes back down and he tries to convince his fellow prisoners and they say you're mad you can't even see properly because of course the man's been blinded by the sun he can't see the cave very well anymore and so this is a theme that's grappled with in the second of the works that we've chosen to highlight in the editorial side of the issue which is is Fear and Trembling by Søren Kierkegaard. This is another work by someone who styles himself as a follower or a disciple of Socrates, but was living several thousand years after the execution of the latter. So Kierkegaard was a Danish philosopher of the 19th century not just removed in time but geographically very far from greece and also very far from the real hubs of european philosophy of his own day france and germany particularly were the places in which the current philosophical movement of the enlightenment was making itself most visible socially and culturally and so denmark is on the fringes of germany and has a little bit of the taste of german culture but isn't in the heart and the center of it but Kierkegaard was fascinated by socrates and by particularly one of the tacts or the the rhetorical devices that Socrates uses in many of his dialogues, both the dialogues that are written by Plato and by Xenophon, is that of irony. And something that you see in Plato's work, you see it in Xenophon's work, when Xenophon speaks, he uses irony quite frequently, mm-hmm. or when he writes. You'll see it in Eddie's work <laughs> when you read Eddie's column. Eddie's a <laughs> good <laughs> he's he's uh yeah, he's looking shifty.
2: Perhaps ironically.
0: He's got a <laughs> better Kiki guy's interested in this, and he's interested in the way that writers like Plato and Xenophon have these characters which could be Socrates, or it could be, for example, Xenophon itself, and managed to do these interesting devices in their writing where they can create distance or ambiguity by saying something but implying something else. And so it's something that Kierkegaard explores in his works, and one of the most obvious ways that he does it is through the use of pseudonyms. Most of Kierkegaard's writings in his early literary career are written under other people's names. Some of them he's stolen from people in the past, such as Johannes Clemarchus. Others he makes up and are just scabs, like hilarious book buying. So the work that we're covering in the issue we're going to talk about now is Fear and Trembling, which he writes under the name Johannes de Silentio or John the Silent. And it's an extended meditation on Abraham. And Kierkegaard is known as the father of existentialism, which is a modern philosophical branch, because it's in works like this and others that he really gets down to talking about these emotions that are characteristic of the modern world, anxiety, dread, guilt, shame. And all of these have a place in fear and trembling because the book, as I said, is a meditation on Abraham and specifically on the moment Abraham's life where he's called to sacrifice his son, Isaac. So the book begins... begins with four retellings they're styled as sort of the way that this child who heard the story in sunday school has misremembered the episode in the genesis narrative throughout his life so each of these it's a retelling of the abraham story on mount moriah with isaac but they're all a little bit fractured and broken and they all end with someone in the story losing faith it might be abraham it might be isaac it might be sarah But someone in the story comes out of it and instead of becoming a founding figure of faith in the biblical story has now sort of lost themselves, has become broken. And it's one of the ways in which Kierkegaard is trying to gently point out to the reader that faith is not a concept. Faith isn't something that you can bundle into a philosophical system and you can just bandy it around and say, well, I think if you examine faith like this, or if you consider faith in this historical movement, Kierkegaard's trying to point out that faith is something that is almost inexpressibly complex personal and at the end of the day perhaps it requires an ultimate form of silence for us to approach it and this is where the name of the character that he's created to write the book johannes de Silentio, comes in john the silent john the silent is the character who's sort of having these reflections having these meditations on abraham and he's inspecting the story from these angles and he's trying to understand Abraham. He's saying again and again, I want to understand this. I want to understand how this is possible. How is this faith? And he begins by pointing out that this is something, whatever act this is, a father sacrificing his only son that he's waited for so long is completely unintelligible in the way that we normally explain our lives. It's, it's grotesque. It's a murder. It doesn't conform to an ethical system and doesn't conform to any poetic standard. And so he begins to bring up these tragic heroes, heroes from ancient Greece or from the Old Testament, who are put to the test and often have to give up a child or give up something great in order to achieve something like the stability of the state, the stability of the nation, the stability of society. And Kierkegaard says that these stories inspire us. These people are tragic heroes. They're poetic heroes. They have a character to them that we want to retell their stories. But Abraham is different. What stability of the state does Abraham achieve by sacrificing his son? His son is the future of the nation that Abraham hopes he will see. But without that son, there's no point in having stability. There's nothing there to have at all. Abraham doesn't conform to the pattern of a tragic hero. He doesn't conform to the character of someone who the poets would write about. And yet we preserved his story. The three major Abrahamic faiths take their name from him. He's the father of not just a Christian worldview of faith, but of the Jewish and the Islamic worldviews. So he's integral. We retell his story, but why? He doesn't conform to any pattern that we see. Kierkegaard then breaks down two ways of life. He breaks down the idea of someone who lives in the finite world, very briefly, someone he might characterize him as a poet, might characterize them as an aesthetic man in some of his other works. And this is someone who experiences the world around them, appreciates the world around them, but doesn't pitch their life on a higher principle, doesn't give it all up for something higher. They enjoy the tastes of the food they eat, the sounds of the music they hear, the stories that they listen to. It's a sensual life, but it's not bad as a result. It's just limited by the finite. He's not condemning it. He's just offering it as something that we actually understand. People understand this. They see people who live like this frequently. We find ourselves perhaps living in patterns of that in our own lives. And then he points out that at a certain point in many people's lives, not everyone, but a certain number of them, they'll have a moment without something shatters and they make a move which Kierkegaard calls infinite resignation. And he gives, he tells a lot of stories in fear and trembling. Um, he tells a lot of stories to kind of cinch what are could be conceived as abstract points. But Kiga doesn't want to be abstract. He doesn't want to sound like a philosopher like Hegel because he has a lot of beef with him. Mm-hmm. So he, he prefers to tell little stories and point out along the way what he's getting at. So he tells a story about a prince or some knight or some other chivalric character who's in love with a princess. And then one day, even though he knows that the princess is deeply in love with him and she knows that he's in love with her, he finds out that he can't marry her. Perhaps she's being married off to another suitor. It's out of his control. He'll never marry her. Now, the man caught in the finite would simply find a new sensual pleasure to attract him. He would court another woman, he would enjoy the thrill of flirting with her, he would go on, he would have dinner, and his life would be as it was. But if he doesn't do that, if he answers the call of infinite resignation, he could become a different kind of man, a man of the infinite. And so Kierkegaard describes the knight who instead chooses to pine away the rest of his life wishing waiting, hoping for the impossible, that one day he will be with the princess, his love, even though it's impossible. Kierkegaard describes this, and again, he's not saying that it's somehow better or worse or that everyone needs to do this passe. se, but he's trying to point out something that we can all readily understand. And he gives more examples, but this is a really good one that he gives in the work because it's a fairy tale. We all click with it. So from there, he begins to describe how there's something awkward about the man of infinite resignation. As soon as you say it, you can (laughs) see it, right? There's something awkward about the guy who won't give up his dream to marry the woman who's gone off into another kingdom and married a different prince. There's something that makes that person not fit properly in the finite world anymore. And again, Kigart isn't necessarily saying that is bad, but he notices there's an awkwardness. He compares it to a ballet dancer who jumps forms the pose, but then lands it badly. And they don't land in the same pose that they assumed in midair. And everyone notices it. You're in the ballet. It's up on the front stage they do the move and they don't stick the landing oh that was awkward i mean a more modern example might be a skateboarder who does like a 920 or something and then absolutely stacks it you, you notice it as good as the move is while they're in the <laughs> midair you're not going to ignore the fact that they've torn the skin off their arm or something when they mm. hit the ground so king says abraham is neither of those two kinds of men he's not someone who limits himself to the finite he's not someone who merely makes this move of infinite resignation where he wishes for something that's impossible abraham wishes for something that's impossible knowing that he'll get it and this is where this sort of a, a paradox is introduced abraham is called to sacrifice his son and so he is fully prepared to do it that's why it's an act of faith but it's somehow he knows that he will receive isaac through the act and it's something that is inexplainable if i were to say to someone well i'm selling my house as an act of faith and you said why and i said well i'm going to get my house back if i do it it would sound absurd mm. and kierkegaard says that's exactly what it is Whatever Abraham's story is, a characteristic of it is the absurd. It's something that is unable to be communicated. And here he says that what Abraham does is he's the ballet dancer who makes the pose in midair and then lands it perfectly. He's never a fish out of water. He's someone who has made the move of infant resignation and then returned again to the finite. And he begins to tell this story of a man. He Kierkegaard is on the hunt, or I should say Johannes de Silentio, the pseudonymous author. He's on the hunt. He wants to find the man of faith in the modern world. And he encounters this burly, happy looking man, maybe a merchant, maybe some sort of bourgeoisie philistine as as Kierkegaard <laughs> names him. And he's walking down the street and he goes to church and he sings the hymns too loud. And he, as he's walking along the street, he's telling everybody what a wonderful meal his wife has cooked for him at home. And he's admiring everything in the city around him. And then he gets home and he finds that his wife doesn't have the meal prepared in fact there's nothing on the table at all they're too poor to afford it and yet it doesn't make a difference to the man he's still as enthralled by life and enchanted by the world as he was on the walk home waiting to get his dinner in Kierkegaard writes or De Silencio the character explains that if he were to study that man's life and wait and wait until he saw the moment of faith he'd never find it he never find the big moment in which that man made this move and came back again, made this move of resigning himself to something beyond the world and yet nonetheless returns and continues to live there. But this is what he says Abraham must do. He says that in Abraham's story, there is a moment in which the universal ceases to have any bearing on him. universal let's take a law you shouldn't hit someone for no reason it's a pretty generally universally recognized law (laughs) that most people would see it as if you were to do that if you were to hit somebody for no reason it would be you as the individual putting yourself above something universal there's a universal code don't inflict harm for no reason you as the individual have willingly put yourself above that code to get your own desires exactly but Kiergaard explains here that in the story of Abraham, the individual somehow becomes higher than the universal. And it's this mystery he's trying to get at. It's, It's something that he wrestles with through the fairy tales he's telling, the little folk stories, the little examples. He mentions Shakespeare. He mentions Faust. He's pulling all these little examples from stories that many people would know, even to this day. And he retells fairy tales and he changes them. And he tells them again and he changes them. And he's drawing us deeper and deeper into thinking about what it means to make this move to go up the mountain for ourselves and to make a leap of mm. faith and how it is that in the moment of faith we as individuals can somehow mean more than the universal or matter more than the universal and this is again where he comes to at least the character johannes de Silentio, which is the persona that Kikiga creates as the author of the book johannes de Silentio gets to the end of this work and he begins to really meditate on silence again and you can't express faith you can't explain it you can't point it out in yourself or somebody else he returns to this we've brought up already. Levi mentions that for the philosopher in the Republic who leaves the cave and comes back, there's almost no hope for him. Will he ever convince the other prisoners to leave the cave and come up with him? There's a similar thing that happens in the Xenophon story. He's the leader of these men for a considerable length of time. And yet at the end of this massive expedition they take, there doesn't seem to be any real change in the constitution of the body. While he led them, there was. But the minute that they return home, the fractures start all over again. And so there's this problem. If, if someone is to attain some sort of higher virtue or personal insight, knowledge, is it possible for them to come back down from wherever they've encountered that and explain it to someone else? And I think this is why, in a lot of ways, this has been a good theme to start our magazine off, because what we really want to do with our project is to encourage people to, yes, to become engaged in a community, to be engaged with others who love learning who love looking at meaningful themes in the past and bringing them into their own lives. But as much as we want this to be a community thing, we want this to reach people individually. We want people to look at these and to read these works or to read summaries of them and to think about this, to read the creative fiction from people involved in the project and to have that opportunity to begin an individual journey because as much as we would love to, we can never fully articulate something profound. We can only gesture and hope that somebody can find it for themselves.
2: I got absorbed there properly just then. Yeah. I remember when I first heard about fear and trembling, because to be honest with you, I've been familiar with a bit of Kierkegaard's work when I first started studying classics and liberal arts. That was my first introduction to him. And then this fear and trembling, I remember hearing the name and passing, but I didn't know anything about it. And so I gave it a quick search and I read a summary of it. And it was saying, you want to understand the anxiety that Abraham withstood when he was binding Isaac and he brought him up the mountain, which was a very long journey. Journey up. And I remember just being completely struck because I'd read the story so many times when I was a child, you know, just like children's Bible type of story. And I remember I'd never ever considered how much of an internal dilemma that would be. And yeah, how you could possibly be forced to kind of just completely tear down everything that's meaningful to you for the sake of finding meaning. That was such a strange concept. And I was which like, is wow, absurd,
0: just... yeah. yeah. It's a beautiful summary. I feel like I want to write that down right now. But to tear down everything that's meaningful to you in order to find meaning is very much at the heart of it.
2: Yeah, I, I thought it was just terrifying, really. It is. No, it's yeah, just, that's a, why the word anxiety rung out to me. It said that Kierkegaard wanted to understand the anxiety that Abraham withstood. And I was like, anxiety. I never thought about Abraham being anxious during that process. <laughs> yeah. I think about it, he probably was.
0: <laughs> and there's a, um, I mean, Kierkegaard really strings out in that, the, that section of the book that it was a three-day journey. Yeah. Like it wasn't days. a get up in the morning and then you just hike and you're there. It was three prolonged days, Abraham, the servant, Isaac, all there. And that so, adds even
2: more depth into it in a lot of ways. Because not only is he being forced to make this decision or face with that dilemma, but he also has time to gestate and he's, he's walking his son. He also has to be in contact with the person who he's supposed to sacrifice for three days. And yeah. he still follows through with it or he doesn't quite follow through with it, yes. but he does in a way. It struck me as, like you were saying, absurd because it is.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And it's one of those things that as much as I would love to get to the bottom of it, and as much as I love conversations where we go into depth in it, it's in many ways, it's impossible. That's kind of the beauty of it. Mm. Feels like a never ending resource of food for thought. It does. (laughs) It it does. It's similar to I think what Plato can do for you as well. When you think about the (laughs) idea of of forms, you know, of perfect (laughs) virtues of perfect goodnesses and beauties, it's one of those things that the minute you start thinking about that, And then comparing that to your experience in the material world, Mm. you just stop when you start thinking about that and you realize sort of the absurdity between how we recognize the world around us. How we often, we do conform to this idea that there is those objective but intangible reality above us. There's an intangible but real version of beauty or goodness or truth out there. And yet, in our own experience, we have a finite perspective so often. Mm. Um, so really, and thoroughly, this is what we hope the project does for people is it gets them to those moments, which is we can't bring you there ourselves say but we want you to be able to do that we want you to in we want to invite people into dialogue into community with people so they can have a conversation when they get you there we also want this to be explored in creative works so we've got poetry in our first issue we've got some illustrations we might have some photography. We've got all sorts of stuff. And Eddie has written a short story, which is finished. It's set in the template to go. And I was I had the privilege of uh, proofreading it. You and know, fixing all back the mistakes. No, <laughs> it was no mistakes. It was just more of a but it it's the back and forth. Oh, it was good. But it was good. And I'd love it if Eddie, you want to just take us through maybe a little bit because we gave you a theme one of the first people we reached out to about this project and you had a lot of ideas that you you know you brought up to me. But um I love where you took it. So maybe I'll hand over to you and you can explain a little bit about your side of the project.
2: So, to be honest with you, when Sam Percy called me up, he was like, "I want to do this little project." The encyclical told me about it, and then he told me the theme would be the journey up. And I'm sitting there going, "The journey up—that is a very vast paradigm. What am I meant to make of that?" And then he gave me a couple of works, which is you know uh, the Anabasis of Xenophon and Fear and Trembling. And I was I was reading summaries of those and going, "Wow, that's." terrifying but I suppose this kind of works as a running theme and I'll, I'll figure something out <laughs> um couldn't quite decide what I wanted to do with it recently I'd been reading probably in excess Russian existentialism and French existentialism not because it's dangerous I'm cocktail I know dude but it's it's a pretty good cocktail it's like a dirty martini it's good and so I sort of was in this headspace where I'd been thinking about you know going back to absurdity just absolutely absurd situations like I was reading Jean Paul Sartre's nausea recently and it was just again messing around with internal dilemmas and trying to figure out that obviously with existentialism it tends to be slightly more minute and less consequential in a way but the authors make it feel like it is very consequential yes. um, so for example in nausea this you know this man he's trying to sit down and eat his breakfast but he can't con- he can't convince himself to pick up his his utensil to eat his food with because he's worried that the utensil is touching him Instead of he's touching the utensil, when you're reading that, you just look at this guy like, man, you, you are so unwell. You just need a lot of help. But it's immersive enough that you almost, in a way, it encourages me or makes me feel as though I should be wary of picking up utensils to eat with. And there's just something background.
0: I mean, there is something interesting in that, you know, because as much as it's an absurd moment, there is something true about the way that we create tools, and then I mean, today more than ever, we have the question of: Are we using tools, or are the tools now beginning to use us?
2: yeah Um, yeah. and so
0: it's interesting that you have you know (laughs) yes well it's um it's a it's a wonderful thing It can be a stupid thing sometimes, like you said, an absurd thing. But it's often a profound thing to have those moments where you read something that is petty and trivial, but written in such an engrossing way that makes you completely reconsider the way you, for example, see a spoon.
2: Yes, I read it the first time and I sort of think to myself, wow, you're a crazy man. But then the more I read it and I read the same section a few times because I was trying to understand because the way he described it was so engrossing. He was saying objects aren't alive. They shouldn't be able to be in contact with things of their own accord. But they are because I touched it, and I was. And the more I read it, the more I was thinking, how am I supposed to round my ideas of conceptual content? It was a very, very engrossing moment for me. That's just as some context for what I've been reading recently, which sort of encouraged me to write something for the for the encyclical, which is very angsty in a kind of similar fashion. You know, you've got this man because it's the journey up. I wrote this story about this as a little text. This is little man who's he's sitting at the bottom of his stairs, and he's there's all these different components going on and he's trying to figure out what he wants to do to go up these stairs and he's worried about the process of doing it and what if he what if he studs his foot what if he this that and the other and it sort of occurred to me that these people it's a journey up and he's trying to figure out how to go about that and he can't get past the tiny little details of making the journey up the stairs to the point where it it's sort of absurd because you're looking at him going, you know, you're trying to walk up some stairs, dude, like get a grip. But I can say I would understand in a way why someone would feel such an intense sense of anxiety again about doing something small like that. And I think it's important to draw attention to that because dilemmas don't always occur in the same fashion as something broad and grand, like killing your own son, for example.
0: Or yeah, leading a Greek mercenary army through hostile territory yeah. to the Black Sea.
2: <laughs> exactly. But nonetheless, it is is a depiction of the journey up, and it is slightly more trivial in that it's not very consequential, but it's highly consequential to this man who's trying to make his own way up. And I think there's something to be said for a comparison of journeys up, I suppose you would say. Yeah. Which is what I was trying to draw attention to in that story a bit. It's so angsty and absurd, and it's not something that should be even really considered a journey up. But it has all sorts of components and such, which I think I think, draw attention to the idea that it's not always such a simple process to make a journey up and it doesn't really matter what the journey is as long as it's a journey up. So I don't know if that made sense.
0: I'll bring this in now. So we're recording this today on Sunday the 26th of March, which is the feast of Johannes Clemarchus, And he wrote a book of the Ladder of Divine Ascent. Mm. Uh, we consider that work as one of the classics that we'd cover in the issue. And we ultimately decided it wasn't going to be the best choice because it is a very direct pastoral work yes. uh, from a orthodox eastern mystic in the 8th century i think or 7th century and it's just one of those things that reads like the sermon on the mount or something where you read it and you can't really explain it away it is just going to stick with you and you really have to make decisions then and there about the message so we didn't think it was something we could try and do a recap of or a summary of for a magazine and if people do want to approach it it's written in 30 i think chapters and um each of them is sort of styled on a different step on the ladder of approaching god Mm. um or drawing you. uh, a rung on the ladder. Yeah, it's written by a monk, and so I read the first three. By the third rung, there was so much I was I was processing and really profoundly meditating on life and experience that I thought, "There's no yeah. way I'm going to read this whole thing and then try and do a blurb summary of it." So we we didn't, as I've mentioned, go with it as sort of something the capping in the issue, but Eddie because we, I brought it up to him when I first approached him, went into it a bit. And there was that one quote, which I think you brought up to me in a phone call when you're talking about the work uh, as you're writing a short story, which is that it doesn't matter what rung
2: you are on the ladder. It matters what direction you're traveling. Yeah, it's, it's um, almost as though someone, it was an analogy that was made, which was that when you're climbing the ladder, you're not climbing the ladder. You're trying to narrow it down to where... The top of the ladder comes to you, so mm. wherever you are on the journey it's almost as though he was trying to say there's not really a top of the ladder in a strange way of course which yeah. which
0: which in some ways, when you're talking about the concept of an infinite God, the idea that, that you can have a ladder of simply thirty steps and you're done, you know mm. there's something ludicrous, no matter how hard the steps might might be, but I love that your work. Your short story, Eddie, especially what you're saying about it and the minutiae that the man focuses on. There's a beautiful bit right at the start. It's very, it's very funny. I found it funny. And it's also a little bit, like you said, demented in some ways where he's yeah. focusing on the dust and the omnipresence yes. of it and how he has this reaction to it. It's very visceral mm. and, he, and he hates it in a very physical way. And it's one of the little things he's trying to conquer in his, in the start of his journey upwards. And I think it was, it's great the what your story achieves in the context of the issue because like you mentioned it's not the sacrifice of your son. It's not leading a mercenary army through the enemy territory, but it's as that meditation from the ladder of divine ascent runs. It's not the rung that you're on right now that matters. It's the direction you're moving on the ladder. You know, yeah. If you're on the 30th step and moving downwards, well, you're worse off than being on the first step and struggling. Oh no! Yeah, and so that's I guess if we're going to wrap up, I hope that people have had like a good taste of just some of the stuff that we're trying to cover with this project some of the creative contributions that are in there and with this theme and how we've been reflecting on it in the works and in the creative side of things what we hope we can what we hope is people will get out of this um and we hope that people will will take away something that gives them a leg up or gives them a a a map or or any analogy you want to run, right? But some sort of asset to help them on the journey up. A Uh, surfboard to help
1: ride the waves.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Anything of that nature. And so, yeah, I really hope that when this launches, if you're listening to this now, you head over to the Substack or the website and check out the uh, online magazine, the PDF. And we have a Discord server, which we've started up to host the community. And so all of the information about that will be found... On our website or our substack. So whenever you're listening to this, hopefully um, you'll be able to find links to those things. We also have an Instagram page where we share updates. Um, and that's Incidental Encyclical Magazine is the tag for that. Uh, and that'll be the website URL as well, incidental So I'd like to thank you guys so much, Levi and Eddie. Uh, not just for the conversation tonight, but also just all the work you guys have been putting into this thing so far. It's been great. Love talking to you guys about the project and working on it
1: yeah good fun love it well thank thank you also for taking the initiative and getting this moving we'll uh, have plenty more to assist people with in the next quarter in the next yes
0: month. yeah and mm-hmm. um should we should we tease something about that now or should we leave that i don't think we should tease anything it's too early on it's, it's <laughs> a bit too early i think but yeah be, right. we'll be assured there's out. plenty more coming there is plenty more coming. We'll be dropping an issue at the end of March, so probably about a week from when this podcast goes up. And then the next one, will are coming a quarter after that, so the end of winter if you're in the Southern Hemisphere like us or summer if you're not. Uh, anyway, like to thank you. Like I said, I'm Sam. And we've got Eddie. Thank you. <laughs> and Levi.
1: Thank you all very much for listening. Jeez, and
0: we'll hopefully, uh, you'll hopefully hear from us in a couple of months' time. Brilliant.